What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Even though the official line from some representatives for the California Department of Corrections, like Dana Simas, is that there is no utilization of solitary confinement in California prisons, we know from personal testimony, attorneys, researchers, advocates, that thousands of people languish in isolation and torturous conditions every day in United States jails and prisons. A new book takes a deep dive into the realities of solitary confinement, and we are joined by the co-authors. The book is way down in the hole, Race, Intimacy, and the Reproduction of Racial Ideologies in Solitary Confinement by Angela J. Hattery and Earl Smith. Angela Hattery is a professor of women and gender studies and the co-director of the Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence at the University of Delaware in Newark. She is co-author of Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled, and How to Work for Change and the Social Dynamics of Family Violence. Good morning, Angela. Good morning, Kat. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. We are also joined by Earl Smith, a professor of women and gender studies at the University of Delaware, Newark, and the Emeritus Rubin, distinguished professor of American ethnic studies and sociology at Wake Forest University. He is also co-author of Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled, and How to Work for Change in the Social Dynamics of Family Violence. Good morning, Earl. Good morning. You know, I um, you know, I actually like to start with the personal. I I think re- re- whether you're a professor or an advocate or a grassroots organizer, there's a story uh, for folks that come into this kind of work. And I'd like to start with yours, um, Earl. I'll start with you. How was this the conversation you wanted to have, um, in academia and in and in the world, particularly around policing prisons, black bodies, et cetera? Well, it is a story, and. I don't know how much time we have for me to tell it, but uh, I started doing advocacy work when Angela Davis was arrested or chased and arrested. And I was at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. We had a Free Angela chapter or a group at least. And um, when she was released, I think we were one of the first um, places that she gave her one of her first uh, talks after her release. And this struck me deeply. At the same time, I was doing a low-level job at a at a state, Connecticut State Maximum Security Prison. And I can't remember exactly whether the death penalty was on or off, but some of the people who I interacted with, some of the inmates, some of the prisoners that I interacted with, were on death row. And in that particular setting, death row was down in the hole. And down there was solitary confinement. So this takes me back to the early 1970s. And um, it just never left. And so I studied sociology and criminology. Uh, I've taught courses in criminology, penology, et cetera, written books 
about the abusive police systems that we have in this country. So I'm in it. And uh, this work is, I'm very passionate about it and will continue to do it until I can't any longer. Thank you for that, Earl. Angela, I'm going to throw that same question to you. How did you come into this work? So thank you, Kat. It's a, a really great place to start because I think writing a book is telling a story. And for me, all of the research that I've done and advocacy and, and um, policy work is always about a story. And it's about a story that gets into my skin, gets inside me that I can't shake. And that's a good thing. It's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing because the inability to shake it, the you know waking up thinking about it, the being disturbed by it um, is what motivates me to get up and do this really hard work every day and you know deal with all these things that are not uplifting. Um, they're horrifying. And though there, there's a number of stories that have stuck with me um, over a long period of time with regard to this work, the story is um, about a man who was wrongfully convicted um, and served almost 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And his name is Daryl Hunt. And Daryl Hunt um, was in prison and exonerated um, in a community where I was living at the time, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I had never really thought much about wrongful conviction um, or exonerations or the conditions around those. Um, but living in the South and Daryl's a black man and the crime involved the brutal rape and murder of a white woman, um, racial politics were really unfolding. And that was, you know, concerning and interesting. But what really drew me in was Daryl himself. And Earl and I had an opportunity to um, work with him. He founded a nonprofit after he, he got, after he was exonerated and we worked with him for a number of years um, until unfortunately he ended his life um, about less than 10 years after he was released from prison. But Daryl went to prison the year that I went to college and it, I've never really been able to move past or, or I spend a lot of time thinking about the trajectories of our two lives and what I got to do that he didn't get to do. Um, go to school, start a job, buy a house, um, start a family, all of those kinds of things. And had, you know, and, and I, th I think a lot about the ways that our lives took such different trajectories because of things that were structural and completely out of our, you know, we had no control over those things really. And so that was my first sort of, that's really my first story of that I, that I can't shake. And so when, when we had the opportunity to, conduct research um, in solitary confinement units, of course, as horrifying and scared as I was to do that, I said, yes, absolutely. Because I know that my friend Daryl spent hundreds of days in solitary confinement and that that largely impacted the struggles that he had re-entering. Um, and so I needed to learn more. I needed to learn more for my, for my friend Daryl and for the, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people who are locked in solitary confinement every day in this country. Thank you both for that. And and that that's actually um, a, a piece of the story, a Angela, is y'all's experience. I mean, the book starts, right, with talking about everything from the time of the morning you get up to make the long treks to the types of food you pack to ultimately the types of food you will eat um, inside of these rural towns. And we'll get into that in a minute. One of the things that I was struck by 
Um, however, I, I, you know, I started this interview by saying here in California, we've got uh, correctional facility, uh, correctional facility staff um, that state publicly, right? There is no solitary confinement. They're just making that up. That it, it absolutely doesn't exist. Um, and certainly getting access, right, um, to those facilities has been something almost impossible. Can you talk about, I guess it's a multi-part question, um, and we'll start with you, Angela, and then throw it back to you, Earl, the actual experience of going in the facilities, but, but like, how did you get that access? Um, and do you, is it similar in other places in the country where folks sort of pretend that this isn't really happening, this torture of human beings? This is such a great question, Kat, and I'm really glad that you started with it. Um, I think one of the sort of dirtiest tricks that's going on with relation to solitary confinement is all these, you know, DOs, departments of correction, states, federal government, denying that there's solitary confinement when all they've done is rename it. So, you, you know, I'm sure you've heard other people talk about it. Where we did our research, um, there's no solitary confinement. It's called a restricted housing unit or RHU. Um, there are, you know, terms like diversionary treatment units, behavioral management units, uh, segregation housing units, or the SHU. Um, all of it is solitary confinement. All, it is solitary confinement, whatever you call it. Um, it is true that in some, uh, in some cases, and we certainly observed this in the state um, where we were doing our research, some uh, people incarcerated in solitary confinement do have cellmates. Um, so it's, you know, there are cases where people are not literally locked in a cell by themselves for 23 hours a day, but they're locked in a cell for 23 hours a day. Um, they're shackled and strip searched and escorted, um, you know, to the shower and to the yard. And really the conditions are no different than if they were locked alone, other than there's one, one other person in the cell. So I'm so glad you started with that um, because it, it's, it's absolutely absurd that people are acting like it's it's no longer true, um, and, and I can pass it you know pass it back through you to Earl to talk about how we got access if that makes sense. Yeah, I was actually just going to suggest that. That's perfect. Thank you. This is a very good question, and you're right, Cat. That whatever you call it, and you can call it all those different things that Professor Hattery mentioned but it's isolation. And I would argue that you're almost worse off having a celly because of the dimensions of that particular space. That said, um, you've heard the phrase um, something like you're going out into the world of work and it may not be your credentials that land you the position, but it might be the fact that you know somebody, that you know somebody, you got some, some capital, uh, and that somebody helps you land a position. That's sort of how we ended up going into solitary. Um, we met a professor at the university where we were working at the time who invited us to her class to give a, uh, give a talk and realized that she was using a book that we had written on reentry. 
you know, the, the, the whole business of what happens to you or how you prepare or not prepare for re-entering society. And supposedly you're better off having done this time. So we got to know her because we didn't know her previously. Um, we became colleagues. And lo and behold, one day, because we knew her, she told us about a project where she had received some seed money to do this uh, study in solitary using undergraduate students as research assistants. And she was asking us to join this team, I think primarily because of our expertise in the area of gender and race. And that's how we got access. But what we also learned is one of the reasons why she got access to set this up was either the commissioner or the sub-commissioner is somebody that she knew, possibly in graduate school. Uh, so the adage about it's not what you know, but who you know, uh, in this instance, is true. Angela, I'd, I'd like to talk um, a little bit about um, the history of solitary confinement. Um, where did we see it emerge in the United States? And then, Earl, I'm going to shoot it to you to talk about its rise in utilization, how it became such a prevalent um, plank of the U.S. penal system. Angela? So the history of solitary confinement in the United States really dates back um, pretty much to the beginning of the United States. Um, and there were really two schools of solitary confinement sort of philosophy, um, the New York philosophy and the Pennsylvania philosophy. And I think it should come as no surprise to, to your listeners and to people who pay attention to mass incarceration and prisons and um, solitary confinement that the two states where solitary confinement is sort of born are two states that have two of the biggest prison systems. I mean, outside of California and Texas and perhaps Florida, New York and Pennsylvania have in incarcerated an enormous number of people. So they're huge prison systems. And there were two kind of competing um, philosophies. One was a philosophy of punishment and the other was a philosophy of kind of a retreat or a sort of monastic kind of like separate people from, you know, the everyday world, give them some time to reflect and think about, you know, what they're doing and how they're behaving and what they want to, you know, accomplish in their lives, um, which feels very romanticized and nostalgic. Um, and maybe, you know, in the early 1800s, it was. Um, I kind of doubt that. But the history, you know, the, those two histories begin solitary confinement, but I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who would tell you anymore that it's anything other than just flat out punishment, that there's no longer really any, you know, redemptive quality to it. Um, if, if that ever made sense at all, um, it certainly doesn't, doesn't now. The conditions are torturous, they're um, brutal, dehumanizing, um, and, and they don't really they don't at all, I shouldn't say even really, they don't at all produce time for reflection. Um, they produce a lot of mental health issues. Um, they cause anxiety, time, time in solitary causes, 
you know, anxiety, depression, um, all kinds of physical health problems. Um, and so, you know, if people want to have a retreat to, you know, commune with nature, go to a monastery, don't go to solitary confinement. And I don't mean that it sounds maybe a little bit like flippant, but um, this idea that it's another sort of lie about solitary, this idea that it is in any way, anything other than punishment. Yeah. Um, th thank you for that. Uh, Earl, can you talk about, and I actually heard you talk about this in another interview about the, the rise and utilization of solitary confinement and specifically as it's tied to um, the punishment of political prisoners. Uh, Angela talked about these two competing systems. Um, inside of both is the whole notion of punishment. I grew up in New York, and I can tell you, Kat, that if I counted 20, let's say, say 20 uh, black males in my age cohort, 18 of them would have been sent to juvie when we were, you know, 12, 15 years old. So listening to these characters who came home, uh, the first time you met them, they would be talking in what I would just call cadence. Uh, they would be telling you about all the things that they experienced in juvie. And much of it was brutalization. Much of it was fighting. Much of it was being cut. A lot of it was rape. And um, I'm thinking, wow. I always thought, foolishly, that going to juvie was supposed to help straighten you out, uh, set you on the right path, so that when you got out, you would be better behaved. You would, you would know how to behave and get along. Fast forward into adulthood, when I uh, mentioned to you about the maximum security prison in Connecticut, um, when I went there to work full-time, they had rehabilitation programs. And, you know, it might sound foolish today, but uh, they had typewriter repair, uh, auto repair, wood shop, the license and sign making uh, shops for the state. And they were supposed to be doing rehabilitation when in fact now you would know that those same kinds of outfits, those same kinds of units come under the jurisdiction of prison industry where you work for eight, 12, 25 cents an hour. Um, Solitary moves in the same line as warehousing of men and women in our society, post-1970. Um, the catch word today is mass incarceration, and we should add to that mass dehumanization. Um, treat people with no dignity. Uh, make them eat where they defecate, make them sleep in the same places, uh, put chains around their waist, around their feet, around their arms, uh, beat the crap out of them, uh, 
We did two stints of interviews in women's prisons and some of the same type of brutality that we saw in the men's prisons took place in the women's prison. Um, as a male, um, and my understanding of you know women who need uh, feminine products, et cetera, uh, to deny those products when everybody knows they're needed uh, is just flat out dehumanization and torture. Um, there's no other way to explain it. Um, to see women who are pregnant, uh, we know what's going to happen. They're going to have a baby. The baby's going to be born eight, nine months. And then to shackle those women and take them into delivery rooms to have those children when any woman knows that she ain't going nowhere when she's about to have a baby. That's for sure. So these kinds of policies and practices are embedded within all these solitary units, regardless of what we call them. And it makes you wonder. Uh, Albert Woodfox, uh, who everybody knows, the late Albert Woodfox, uh, he didn't last long after he was released after 40 plus years in solitary. Daryl Hunt, Angela said, was dead, I forget, X number of years after he was released for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, one of the Angola Three who was uh, with Albert Woodfox through most of their uh, time in solitary died three days, three or four days after he was released. Um, it's, it's just unbelievable uh, that you could lock people up, fly that flag outside of every prison we went to. I think we went to six or, six or seven prisons for this research project. Every last one of those prisons have a big old flag flying out there. And you go inside and you see the pictures on the wall of the commissioner and subcommissioner and all these people. And then they spread the lies that the only place you have torture and whatnot is in North Korea, Cuba, China, and Russia. It's unbelievable. And it's the same big lie attached to the lie that we don't have solitary confinement. In your state of California, which, which is always in the backdrop of every conversation of solitary confinement, Pelican Bay, um, all these places, you know, they bring Oprah in and they, you know, shoot documentaries and uh, they repaint the, 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 the cells and tell you that, oh, my gosh, we've just ended this. Um, even Barack Obama, um, great man, great president. He couldn't deal with it. And, um, you know, you just you just have to, I think, understand it's embedded within the fabric of this society. Angela Hattery, how embedded when we're talking about the numbers of individuals to the best that we can guess, because we know that. Um, prisons, police, jails, et cetera, are, are not the best data keepers. How many folks are we talking about every day languishing inside of solitary confinement in this country? And how does that compare to other places in the world, international utilization of solitary confinement? 
Kat, that's a, it's a great question. And, and part of the reason that it's hard to measure how many people are in solitary confinement is because if you don't call it solitary confinement, then you can't measure it, right? Um, but we estimate, I mean, not we, but, but people who collect the data estimate somewhere between 40 or 50,000 and 80,000 people are held every single day in solitary confinement cells or isolation cells in the United States. Um, I think what's more perhaps more concerning, um, although that's concerning because that's a big number, um, is that of the 2 million people or so who are incarcerated on any given day, 20 to 25% of those people will spend some time in solitary confinement, which makes that number feel a lot bigger because it means that, you know, now you're talking about um, across a year, you may have a half a million people who've spent some time, maybe one day, um, but half a million people who've spent some time in solitary confinement. Um, that's, that's extraordinary because the research tells us that in fewer than 24 hours, mental health symptoms begin to appear. So you don't necessarily have to be in solitary confinement for a long time to have traumatic experiences and long-term impacts from solitary confinement. You know, in terms of the, the rest of the world, the story of solitary confinement is kind of the same story of mass incarceration, that we lead the, the world um, in incarcerating people and we lead the world in incarcerating them in solitary confinement. Um, you know, as Earl said, it's sort of, it's the big lie with the flag and it's a deflection tactic. You know, let's make the public think that this is not really a big deal in the United States, that we don't really do that. Um, but we do. And the UN, you know, suggests that more than 15 days of consecutive, more than 15 consecutive days in solitary confinement constitutes torture. Um, that's the UN, right? We don't have to pay attention to what the UN says. Um, that you know we're not under any obligation to abide by that, you know, article. Um, but that's their definition of torture, and under that definition of torture, we're torturing probably hundreds of thousands of people every single year, right? Um, because the truth is that very few people spend only one or two days in solitary confinement. Most people spend. Um, at least a month, which is twice that 15 days. So, so we're leading the world and, and we're paying the consequences because all of most of those people will come home someday. They'll be back in our neighborhoods, back in our communities, um, you know, back where we live, where we work, where we worship, where we play, all of that stuff, all of those places, those people are coming home and they're coming home without any, you know, transition or healing of the experiences that they've had in solitary confinement. So if you add all of that up, it's hard to know how many people in the United States have some residual impact from the trauma they experienced in solitary confinement. Wow. We send Congress people, we, we send uh, wardens, uh, prison officials, we all send them over to Norway or some other place like that. And they get all gleeful, uh, jumping up and down. Uh, the prisoners have uh, beds and not cement slabs. They have mattresses, they have blankets, they have pillows. Uh, they even have kitchens. So if you wanna cook up some 
you know, noodles and rice and, and make a nice meal, not, not, not in a cup with one of those things you stick in the cup and you plug it in the wall and you make hot water the way they do in U.S. Uh, jails and prisons. But they have full-blown kitchens. Uh, they can walk outside. They can paint the skyline and what have you. And then those people come back here and say, oh, my gosh, we saw a very different um, prison system. And it, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that here? And, and the question we ask is then, why don't you? But what nobody talks about and what we saw in solitary in the United States is many of those countries don't have the kind of racial stratification system that we have in the United States. They don't have it. They don't have pieces of their population that have been deemed less than human. They don't have pieces of their population that are forced to live in, in segregated neighborhoods. They, they, they can't get housing, even if they served in the military, they can't get access to whatever that certificate is that you get, that the military says you don't have to make a down payment at the bank. Uh, they get redlined, um, live in squalor, et cetera. You don't have those kinds of systems as deeply entrenched and racially stratified. So the great basketball player, Brittany Griner, was sent to a prison in Russia and ultimately a penal colony. I can't wait. And she should take her time, but I can't wait for her to tell us what her prison experience was like in Russia. Uh, believe me, I just can't wait because as bad as Solzhenitsyn told us that these gulags were in the Soviet prison camps, the Soviet penal colonies, I would bet you because they don't have, at least not in the same shape and form that we have, this racial stratification system, it doesn't measure up to what you see in places like Pelican Bay, Attica, etc. I would bet you you don't see it because we have a racist system that puts people in categories from top to bottom. It's good on the top, it's bad on the bottom, and, and guess what? The bottom always look browner, blacker than the top. Always looks that way in the United States. So solitary is built on top of this racial stratification system. And that's what we saw. And that's what's different about our book from all the great, great research, the great books by MD, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, the person who wrote the foreword to our book, uh, Dr. Terry Coopers, is well known in the, in the solitary science medical community. And he told us, and he says it in the forward, we uncovered some serious stuff about racism in the solitary confinement space of the penal colonies, the carousel state of prisons in the United States. 
You are listening to Law Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Angela Hattery and Earl Smith about their latest book, Weighed Down in the Whole, Race, Intimacy, and the Reproduction of Racial Ideologies in Solitary Confinement. And Earl, that's actually where I want to go next because you all go somewhere in the book um, that not a lot of abolitionists do, which is usually who I'm speaking to about these issues. And that is to look at this issue, not just from the perspective of folks that are um, locked away in solitary confinement, but from the folks that are doing the locking away, uh, the correctional officers. And, um, and I, Angela, I'm, I'm going to turn you to, to kick us off. Uh, talk to us about A, the decision to engage so deeply with, with COs um, and their worldview around the people that they are incarcerating. So I'm so glad we're going to have a chance to talk about the COs. Um, they are a complicated group of people. <laughs> I want to just start there. And I think it's important to say, you know, out loud and for the record that they do a lot of terrible things. Um, they, create a lot of the dehumanizing conditions that exist in solitary confinement. They create many of much of that. They also inherit much of it. And the decision to spend so much time with them um, was largely for the reason you said that most people haven't. Um, most people, unless you are a correctional officer yourself, and most of them don't want to come out and talk about what they did after they finished that job, um, there's, there's almost no research on their experiences. And so it was a unique opportunity to really get, learn more, um, about what their, not just their experiences, but as you said, Kat, their worldview. And I think, you know, Earl and I have also done research on, uh, domestic violence. And in that research, we interviewed both the abuser and the victim survivor of that abuse. And much like our experience in solitary confinement, if we hadn't focused so much energy and attention on the staff and dug so deeply, we'd have really missed an important part of the picture. And and especially to, to Earl's point, I think we would have seen race, race and we would have seen racism. But I don't think without talking to the COs who are almost all white, we interviewed one black sergeant and one black mental health provider, um, I don't think we would have understood the depth of of the white racial resentment that they've developed and the role that working in a prison plays in all of that. Um, and so the the sort of long and, and interesting and important story short is that we as as you know many people know, most of your listeners probably know, we build prisons as a form of economic development in mostly predominantly rural white communities, and that's California, New York, um, Texas, pick a state. Um, vast majority of the prisons are in rural, predominantly white, economically disadvantaged communities. And they're built to replace some sort of industry that has left. And that's crazy, right? Like, wow, who thinks that that's a good idea? Um, and as many people know, that contributes to the rise in incarceration. It's the sort of, if you build it, they will come. Um, in this case, if you build it, they will be sent there. Um, but so, so you have a racialized space where the people working in the prison are not only almost all white, but their lives 
are outside of the prison almost all, all white. As we write in the book, they don't play softball in interracial teams. They don't worship in interracial spaces. Their kids don't go to interracial schools or integrated schools. Their lives are very white. And then they walk through the metal detector and they, you know, put on their prison, you know, their uniform, their CO uniform, their guard uniform. And now they're in a space that's highly inter- interracial, but not integrated, right? So they're mostly white. Uh, the people they lock up are disproportionately black and brown. And so it becomes very easy for everything that they see and do to be interpret- interpreted through that, that lens, right? Um, it's a, it's a good guys, bad guys. It's an us, a them. It's a weird, good, they're bad, um, kind of setup. And then inside of that setup, what we write, we call it in the book, the flipped script. They now have to do the things that customarily, and, and Earl was, Earl was describing in, in terms of the structure of, you know, white supremacy and, uh, racial hierarchies in the United States. They now have to do the thing that they're used to black people doing for them. Right. So if they were to go to an urban center and, you know, who's going to be cooking the food or cleaning the toilets, it would in all likelihood be someone who's black or brown in the context of solitary confinement because of the nature of solitary that, you know, prisoners and we use the term. I want I hope that your listeners have paid attention, you know, have stayed with us this long. We use the term prisoner deliberately um, to highlight the fact that people who are incarcerated have their civil and legal citizenship rights held by the state. So they are literally prisoners of the state. Um, So the prisoner, because they're in solitary confinement, you know, they have to be fed. They have to have sometimes their toilet flush. They have to be taken to the shower. They have to be taken to exercise. They have to be taken to medical. They have to be taken to, you know, see the psych staff. They have to have, you know, toilet paper distributed or menstrual products. And for the white CO, this can begin to feel like they're just lying there relaxing and I'm doing all the work, right? I'm climbing up and down the stairs. I'm delivering the food. And then on top of it, I'm being yelled at or spit at or treated in some way that is less than appreciative. Um, And they begin over time to develop a very, very deep sense of, of what, of white racial resentment. They, they, instead of blaming the government for building prisons as a form of economic development, they blame the people they're locking in the cages for their circumstances. And, and it all started on the, the very first interview I had with the CO. Um, we sat down together in a, you know, in a, in a room, in a space that was, well, it, it, in solitary confinement. And he said to me, you know, we're, we're Trump's left behind. We're Trump's forgotten. And I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like, you go home every day. What are you talking about? Of course, that's not what I said. I said, tell me more about that. Um, and over and over and over again, we heard stories of people who's, from people whose lives are difficult. Be- they begin to believe, and it's, of course, all not true. But for them, their perception is reality. They begin to believe that, you know, the five minute conversation they have with a psychological staff who's yelling through the the door of a cell, they believe that that is mental health treatment that a prisoner is receiving, that they're not. Um, And it's a really important story because it underscores the fact that, you know, as Earl was alluding to, we argue in the book that solitary confinement would not have likely become such such a deep and widespread part of the American experience, the, the experience of people living in the United States, 
were it not for those decisions, you know, that the founders made um, built on white supremacy, that certain bodies were less than fully human. And once some bodies are defined as less than fully human, you can do anything you want to them. And once you do it to them, you can do it to other people too, right? That slippery slope. And so understanding the role that white supremacy plays is, it's, I think, solitary, the experiences of solitary confinement really distill that in a way that even though we'd been studying and writing about mass incarceration for almost a decade by the time we went into solitary, it, it gets really distilled and very, very clear in solitary confinement. Um, and so I think, you know, the story of the COs is, um, is important because if we don't understand that, as Earl mentioned, you know, we go to Norway and and think, well, let's just bring home a fix to the system, but that that will never solve the problem until we address honestly the root the roots of white supremacy. Right? It's all rooted in white supremacy. You are listening to Lawn Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Angela Hattery and Earl Smith about their latest book, Way Down in the Whole Race, Intimacy, and the Reproduction of Racial Ideologies in Solitary Confinement. Earl, we're having conversations. I mean, you you started this interview talking about how long you have been in this work, right? So um, you're super clear that we're having, we're having conversations about uh, abolition, <laughs> uh, reimagining public safety, redefining public safety in in ways and in places that I, I mean, just unheard of and unimaginable. Just just a few years ago, right? Um, talk about the role of this conversation specifically about solitary confinement inside of that dialogue. How how does centering this conversation, uplifting this conversation, push that conversation further down the road? Well, I listened to a, a book this morning about Rikers Island. And when you just say those two words, everybody knows what you're talking about. Rikers Island. And if you've been around this work and you don't know that, then you must have been sleeping on the moon or something. And one of the things that threw me, they opened the book with a speech by some New York City politician. And he was describing how the scum of the earth, you know, needed to move through these spaces and be cleansed so that the needles that they use to stick in their arms and the guns that they use to rob people and kill people, uh, when they come out, all of that will have been left behind. And there was a deep pause, and the narrator of the book tells you who the speaker was, and then says, and they were talking about Rikers Island, and then says, you know what the date of this speech was? 1921. I almost fell off the treadmill. I'm thinking... This guy was saying all these things in 1921 specific to Rikers Island. And I can pick up the newspaper today and see the same kinds of things being said about Rikers Island in 2023, 2022, 2023. We've been talking about eliminating solitary forever. And each year, each administration 
whether it's state administration, whether it's the local county jail pop, uh, administration, even the federal government that oversees the federal prison systems, each year they come up with some type of excuse on why they can't get rid of this system. Heck, they've told us they were going to get rid of Guantanamo. And it's still there being used with a handful of prisoners, costing the taxpayers gazillion dollars. Mayor, I think his name is Eric Adams, in New York City, is a new mayor. He's a black mayor, former police guy. He's already backtracked on what he was going to do closing Rikers Island. You know, they were going to make five boroughs of prisons and each borough would have their own little prison. Uh, he's backtracking now because he's got pushback from police unions and, and, and all these guard unions, et cetera, who are very powerful entities. So when we look at Solitary Cat, it is something that's been in the conversation forever. And it always ended with, we will be getting rid of this system the next time, and the next administration pushes it down the road to the next time. So much so that in 2023, here we are. There's hunger strikes, as there were hunger strikes in the past. There's mutilations. The suicide rate is up in all these prisons and jails. Um, at Rikers Island, you can't even get the, the correctional officers to come to work because they know if the, even not coming to work, they're still going to be paid. So this whole thing is corrupt from top to bottom, dehumanizing. Um, we asked ourselves a simple question when we were doing our research. Uh, at that time, the mail system in this particular state prison system and now across the country, was being farmed out to a third-party processor so that your, your mail, including legal mail from your attorney, was being sent to these places in Florida, et cetera, uh, Xeroxed, and then sent back to you. So we're sitting there interviewing prisoners, and they're telling us they haven't had mail in three, four weeks when they normally would get letters from their loved ones, et cetera, inside of a week. So when we left the prison, we, we get back home. We're, we're doing follow-up uh, debriefing. We have students looking into the mail system in these prison systems, including the one where we work. And we find out that they Xerox this stuff, love letters, Valentine's cards, legal paperwork, and then they send the Xerox copies back to the prisoners. And think about how long this takes. So somebody who's looking to get a, 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 a birthday card from their loved one with perfume in it, et cetera, that's gone. It's a simple piece of Xerox paper. So all of this has taken place in solitary. We used to have, when I was working in the maximum security prison, 
people in death row, people in solitary could have as many books as they want, books and magazines, because at that time we believed that books and magazines would keep people on the straight and narrow, that they wouldn't stray, they wouldn't get in trouble, they'd do what they're supposed to do as long as they could read. Um, and part of that was a part of um, rehab services. One of your state senators, who is still a senator, but not doing well health-wise, Diane Feinstein, was a leader on killing off rehabilitation services, including taking weights and, 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 and exercise equipment out of the yard. Now, if that's not punishment, I don't know what punishment is. Because the prisoners, as she said, would be getting, are getting too strong and, and can overpower the guards. So these are longstanding conversations, uh, longstanding proposals. They, they recycle. It's silical. They recycle with each administration. And at the end of the day, as the abolitionists tell us, nothing has happened. And therefore... The only thing that can correct this mess is to get rid of it. Get rid of it. Abolish it. Done and with it. Exactly. And that is the perfect note for this show to end on. There is so much more um, that you all explore in this book. Um, we hope people will pick it up, open it. It, it is a great contribution to this work and to the field. Um, I want to thank you both for joining us this morning. Y'all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have been in conversation with Angela Hattery and Earl Smith about their book, Way Down in the Whole, Race, Intimacy, and the Reproduction of Racial Ideologies in Solitary Confinement. Angela Hattery is a professor of women and gender studies and the co-director of the Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence at the University of Delaware and Newark. She's also co-author of Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled, and How to Work for Change in the Social Dynamics of Family Violence. Earl Smith is a professor of women and gender studies at the University of Delaware and Newark, and the Emeritus Rubin Distinguished Professor of American Ethnic Studies and Sociology at Wake Forest University. He is co-author of Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled, and How to Work for Change in the Social Dynamics of Family Violence. Y'all make a great team. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>